Exes for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things movies, music, media, comics, and more, check out Cage Club at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Hey everybody, and welcome back to another all-new Exes for Podcast, the show where we take a look at the many adventures of Marvel's mutants and more through their many titles each month. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N on Twitter and Instagram, and today we've got a killer one for you. We're kicking things off with Deadpool's Nerdy 30 before we make our way over to the most recent issue of Teeny Howard's Excalibur, and then landing in the conclusion of our coverage of the debut issue of Cy Spurrier's newest Black Knight mini. First up, myself, Jonah, and Blake all take a look at Deadpool's Nerdy 30, now, we kind of missed this when it came out a couple of weeks ago, so we couldn't wait to cover it here. It was absolutely an experience to relive a number of Deadpool's most incredible creators and more, and we hope you guys enjoy. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to X's for Podcast. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me at Nico Action on Twitter and Instagram. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm your friendly neighborhood ex-nerd. My name's Blake. You can find me on Twitter at BTMorgan85. And I'm Jonah. You can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at Peak Jonah. And we hope you survive this experience just like Wade did, because apparently Wade just can't die, no matter what you throw at him. Whether it's ninjas that look like kick ass, whether it's a bunch of cables trying to kill him or not kill him, or whether it's death herself, you really just can't kill Wade. I, why would you want to? After all these years, why would anybody want to get in the way of one Mr. Wade Wilson? Deadpool has graced or disgraced, depending on how you look at it, the X-Books for something like 30 years now, as this title would point out to us. He first appeared in the pages of New Mutants 98, as this title would remind us over and over again, where he was created by, by Rob Liefeld and Fabian Nicieza, which, guys, don't know if you caught this, but we're going to be reminded over and over again. This wasn't just Deadpool turning 30. This was a celebratory look back at the creators that did this. Now, something I've talked about a lot on this show is the identity of conceptual branding and how it interacts with our understanding of a character. Deadpool was created in New Mutants 98, way back in 1991, where he was a general sort of bad guy. I mean, cool, don't get me wrong, but there wasn't that much special to him until writer by writer began developing him further and taking him somewhere new. Deadpool penetrated the cultural vernacular by virtue of continued success. It was catapulted further by the horrendous film adaptation in Wolverine Origins before ultimately becoming Ryan Reynolds and the highest grossing R-rated film in history. So Deadpool journeyed here. He didn't start popular. He kind of reminds me of another character. There's this character in X-Men, and uh, when they first started appearing in X-Men, they got more hate mail about get this character out of the book than any other character. His name was Wolverine. So Wolverine was not a hit when he first debuted either, and Deadpool, while popular, wasn't this creature. It took every one of these writers, as well as a number of unlisted creators, to catapult this character to the point where he is on every item of clothing when you walk into Target. So, I want to ask you guys, what is your relationship with Deadpool, Wade Wilson? Are you guys all about that Wade? Or could you, you know, oh wow, he's waiting in the pool. That's horrible. Or could you guys <laughs> wade away from Deadpool? 
that's how I got there for the first time in my life. I got it. You know, I uh, initially I did not care for him, uh, or was I just wasn't interested at all until I read uh, Rick Remender's Uncanny X Force. That really made me fall in love with Wade. Remender, you know, gave him a complexity that I didn't, I wasn't really familiar with, because uh, he was always the goofy Merc with the mouth, and and Remender kind of peeled back some layers and still gave him the good one-liners and let him break the fourth wall. Um, but but also, you know, he he put all the members of X Force through a ringer in that run so we got to see some like you know emotional trauma with wade which which a lot of writers uh bring out with him and that's where he kind of shines and then after that the uh the dugan and pasain run i was a, i was a big fan of uh and i thought that was cool that that they came back to do a little bit uh more with him as well i know dugan's dugan's worked on him since that run but i thought it was cool they brought pasain back but yeah after after remender i was a big fan and then of course you know the movies and stuff really sold it so uh i just thought of a new job for wade that if being a mercenary doesn't work out he can drive for lift and be known as carpool great that silence is <laughs> everything i needed for that I would, I would buy it my relationship with wade is interesting because i haven't read a lot of deadpool runs nor have seen him in his earliest appearances i've seen the movie i enjoyed that i've been reading the current deadpool run where he's the, king, the monster king of staten island because i love the representation <laughs> Because if anybody who's from Staten Island knows, I think everybody on Staten Island is a monster, myself included. I enjoy Wade when Wade just gets to be himself and is kind of just a little bit goofball with some serious moments. I think Wade is best written when he isn't constantly serious or a constant joke. I like that there's a lot of quirks and interesting things to Wade's character that a lot of people don't often talk about like his pansexuality him having a daughter you're here for the full you're both here for the full Deadpool experience right and I really connect with that I never much cared for Deadpool initially my memories of Deadpool were of his earliest appearances in New Mutants and X-Force where he kept a woman chained up in a basement and the implications of having sent his girlfriend to imitate another woman who ultimately slept with Cable made me feel like not only did this man keep women chained up in a basement but he was super okay with forcing women into prostitution like this is really really not a great character initially and for so many years that was my only knowledge of Deadpool because that was enough to turn me off over the years he would appear in other things I liked and I would establish a connection with him but the sort of brigade of screaming Deadpools at every comic con that would create fire hazards at every exit trying to take photos falling off of staircases occasionally made it hard to connect with the character and growing up I was a huge cable guy. I wanted to be cable. I just thought being so serious and broken by war was attractive or something. So I really, not only did I want to be cable, but I really connected with this idea of of the stoic man being so powerful and so bold, but he really needed somebody silly to make him laugh. And so I would read more Deadpool in the course of reading cable. It wasn't until I was in my 20s that I came to realize, oh God, I'm not cable, I'm Deadpool. Oh no, I am Deadpool and my husband is cable. Oh no. <laughs> so I only come to appreciate Deadpool, but I I specifically connect with the character. There is something about always keeping a smile on to best mask that sort of pain you carry that I feel 
Deadpool gets better than most characters. And, you know, talking about that holistic interpretation of the character, I think we see that here in the pages of Deadpool's Nerdy 30. For the most part, most writers tried to get a balance of seriousness and humor. Some writers went a little bit funnier, and some writers went probably a little too serious. Now, the creative credits in this book are outstanding. We have the Immaculate Misconception with Joe Kelly and Gerardo Sandoval with Chris Saudomayer. We have Baby's First Cable by Scotty Young, Aaron Conley, and Jean-Francois Bellieu. We have The Best There Is by Kelly Thompson with Kevin Labranda, Bob Quinn, and Rochelle Rosenberg. We have Lo, There Shall Come a Hero, Maybe, by Fabian Nicieza, Patch Zurcher, and Java Tartaglia. Short Story Tall Tale by Gail Simone had art by Michael Shelfer and Jim Charablampidis. No Chill Whatsoever saw Daniel Way return with Paco Medina and Jesus Abertov. Party for One featured Jerry Dugan, Brian Posehn, Scott Koblish, and Nick Filardi. And then the book ended with a short piece called The Tao of Pool. And I really appreciated a lot of what these creators attempted to do. Now, I kind of do want to go story by story, which is daunting, but there weren't that that many, okay? There weren't. So to kick things off, this story started with Joe Kelly, who did the first solo ongoing run on Deadpool. How do you guys feel about this opening story with no context? Like, I actually kept thinking I missed a page. What about you guys? Yeah, it it threw me. Uh, It was very pretty, at least, but Fighter Pool kind of threw me off. And the the, the Obu Matrix, like, is this, is this, like, someone that's more familiar with with Deadpool's past? I almost said Daredevil. For Deadpool's past, like, is is this, you know, floating head of destruction and sexuality? Is is this, like, a normative entity in in his mythos? I'm not sure. I thought it was a Mystique bot, and I thought Mystique was fighting Deadpool by sending a bunch of robots at him, because that's what the floating head looks like. She's blue, sparkly, has red hair. It's Mystique. (laughs) Mama, I cracked the code. I I will say, the first page not making any sense into what exactly is going on is extremely bizarre. Uh, entertaining, but extremely bizarre in that I had no clue. So my thought process was, well, I read this, and I don't understand what's going on. And even after reading it, I still don't understand what was going on. So I'm just going to enjoy it for what it is, and I'm going to smile and nod. <laughs> and I... I think that's kind of perhaps some of what they're going for with this, this very, you're jumping into the madness of Wade. It was a very bold choice to start things off sort of end media res in a story with no walk into it. Now, I think that is very Deadpool in general. You're sort of just dropped into the Deadpooliest of situations. And one of the things that I appreciated about this opening story was it kind of did get that, it, I'm trying to think the right way to put it. This really did feel like it could have been right out of Joe Kelly's run. There's no question in my mind how Having read that run a number of times, this walked right out of it in a really clear, clean way. I appreciated the storytelling, and it kind of got that, oh, nostalgia factor Deadpool story out of the way for me, right? Because once I saw the creative credits when I finished this story, and I saw how many of these writers have each had a significant run on Deadpool. This isn't one of your run-of-the-mill anniversary specials where it's just a lot of current writers and then the people they could get. No, the people on this were chosen with great care and consideration for dared see for Deadpool's past. So I really enjoyed getting that sort of initial opening story kind of out of the way because it was a great time to return to a great run that I really loved, but the 
there really wasn't more to say there. This next story, though, does something that I actually really love. Now, number one, you guys might remember that we recently had Scotty Young on to talk about his incredible career at Marvel, as well as his amazing independent work. And one of the things he talked about was his love of Deadpool, as well as his memories of working on Cable Deadpool's covers toward the end of the series. I love this Scotty Young story featuring art by Aaron Conley and Jean-Francois Bittier, Baby's First Cable, because so much of Wade is taken maybe a little too literally. It's a little too serious. This is Wade as a baby in a high chair being saved by a bunch of cables. There's something so fucking ridiculous to this that you can't help but love it. So I want to tell a quick story, a kind of side story, and it fits the era that this is from. I recently discovered this show. I'd never seen it before, and I I just discovered this show, and I don't know if you guys have ever heard of it, The Simpsons. So I've never watched The Simpsons before, ever. And my husband is like, that's the strangest thing ever, so we're going to watch some The Simpsons. So we're watching it. I can't get over what a good show it is, at least in those first few seasons that I've seen a handful of episodes from each season so far. And they keep saying that, you know, Homer and Marge met in the 70s, and Bart was born in the early 80s, and it's been explained to me that everything few seasons they kind of update things and they retell where people met so that it makes a little bit more sense for a modern audience and they're at the point where Bart Simpson would have to have been conceived around 2008 like the sliding scale on how that fiction works is a necessary component to that sense of bigger than real life that sense of movable media for it to work it's the way we've updated some of the wars that some people have fought in so their character still makes sense to be the right age right this story, having Deadpool be a Deadpool baby and have all these cables and all these different iterations of him, this is so many of my favorite looks for this character come back. There is something so wonderfully playful that really exemplifies the spirit of Deadpool by playing with those meta boundaries and the tongue-in-cheek nature of him being Deadpool the baby in a Deadpool once. This segment of the issue was very fun. Scotty did the secret agent Deadpool too, uh, which was pretty... That was a pretty solid. The art here really, really shocked me. Every page was just so like vibrant and wondrous and like you said, playful. And I kind of got the feeling, I was like, man, like, are we just going to get like an ass ton of cables just like dropping in? Like, uh, and and we did. And it totally paid off. And I also love that Baby Wade ends up with Cable's arm because I always feel like somebody always ends up with Cable's arm and has all this technology. Except Cable. And, <laughs> except Cable. <laughs> but they just like, he's always losing this arm and people always have this technology at a time where they're not supposed to have it and it is this like crucial kind of like ongoing you know motif in, in Marvel storytelling and I love that they kind of threw that in as a, as a tongue-in-cheek joke of like baby with this high-tech arm with who knows what kind of dangers for a, for a baby that doesn't even have all its teeth yet so yeah this this was probably I think this was my favorite of everything in this collection like this Scotty Young piece was really strong it tied for my favorite as well my my other favorite was the Gale Simone piece, but we're, we'll get to Agent X and my obsessive love of Agent X in a, in a little bit. Jonah, how did you feel as the baby of the show? How did you feel about the baby Deadpool interacting with so many wonderful cables? I think the idea of baby Wade basically being Deadpool, getting into shenanigans, causing explosions, and barely surviving somehow is hysterical 
a little grotesque, weird, peculiar, intriguing, and fantastical. My favorite part of the entire thing was just the bunch of cable showing up. And then my second favorite part was Deadpool's family being like, can you stop throwing corpses on us? We're not dead. We're still alive under here. <laughs> and then Wade killed everybody. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I now that you've said it that way, I would actually really love a Tom and Jerry-esque show of Cable as Tom trying to protect Jerry Mouse from always getting in trouble. I'm sorry, I meant uh, Wade, Jerry, Deadpool Mouse from always getting in trouble. Like, I would watch that uh, adorably disturbing animated short. Like, really Looney Tunesy about it. Yeah, I'm sold. Like, like I'll pay for it right now, finally. Unfortunately, what I was less sold on, as much as I loved the aesthetic being so super cool, Riverdale, Archie, and I love Kelly Thompson, I just praised the anachronistic interpretation of Deadpool as a baby and how fun it was that Deadpool was a baby. And I'm not saying that I turned the page and saw Best There Is and was like, no, he was already a baby Deadpool by now. You're getting the continuity wrong. I'm not like saying anything like that, I promise. But I did feel that perhaps inserting Cable into Deadpool's past was adorable. This insertion of Wolverine, I enjoyed it, but it definitely felt superfluous. Not the worst piece in the collection by any stretch, but this was maybe the one that I didn't mind, but felt the least about. Yeah, I I was actually pumped for it, because, so I haven't read much of Kelly's run of this yet, but I adore her as a writer. She's so freaking talented. And she's, she's so amazing. She's just, she, she hits, she throws out banger after banger. Like, she's, she hasn't had, like, a, a lull in her career, which is, which is rad. Like, that's awesome. She does a lot of comics, and I did buy the issue, what is it, Deadpool 4 or 5, where he sneaks onto Krakoa uh, with yeah. Jeff. Uh, and I, I mean, when I read that, A, it, if you're not reading Deadpool and you're just reading X-Men, you know, it's, you can totally buy that on Comixology or get the single, and it, it's, it's, a, it's essentially a one-shot. You can kind of treat it as, like, a, a giant-sized Deadpool issue, in a sense. It, it was so good. And his interactions with, like, Emma and, and Jeff and Emma, you know, when, when she's, like, holding him, talking about making him into a purse. <laughs> like, it was just so good. And and I didn't get, um, I don't know, like, her her humor didn't really shine in this piece much. It, 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 like I said, it was, like, I agree with you, Nico. It, it wasn't, it was not bad. It, it was not my favorite, though. And it, um I don't know, with the, when I saw her name on the title, I guess I, I thought I was going to get something different. Not, not high school prom Deadpool. Now, Jonah, you've actually read a, a bunch of Kelly's run of Deadpool. That's the recent run on Staten Island. How did you feel about this story? I mean, I, I can't get over the colors. The colors are, are so beautiful. The art is so vibrant. But was the art enough to soften the sort of meander of the story? For me, yes. I think art-wise, this is my favorite story. I think it's a little more minimalistic when it comes to the art, but I think that it does it justice and well. I, there's something about it there. I just can't stop staring at like how uh, art pop this looks I wish that the story did a little more when it came to punching up either the comedy or making it a serious story I felt like a little bit more of a half measure in between for both of them and I don't think it's bad I enjoyed it I thought it was fun I kind of just needed a little more from both of them I I think this teen Deadpool trying to figure out the puns was probably the best part. Uh, yeah, was the, it? the bits of humor we got were so terrific. I just read Cymbeline in, in English Lit. Maybe there's something there. Like, <laughs> 
Yeah, I, it had it, a really good honesty. And that's great. So I think maybe, I don't know. I, I'm not exactly sure. I think having it said at prom was a fun idea and Wade pretending to be, uh, <laughs> it's his sweet 16 is pretty on brand for Wade, that poor prom queen. That, yeah. that was my favorite part. <laughs> I, I think maybe the first page was too strong. Like the first panel of him with the with the queen's crown and, and her just crying in the panel. And then Wolverine crashing in and and he says well i guess that's better than pig's blood you know like I, that was a really good first page I, and maybe the maybe the first page was just too good it, it built it built us up too high it was hard to carry and i want to make a weird statement that's so dumb but thank you to the creative team for putting logan in like a pretty era appropriate costume if i'm projecting this like which should be 20 years of x-men ago yeah logan should probably be in the brown suit sure like so I liked that it wasn't Logan in the yellow and blue or the yellow and black. It wasn't the Jim Lee or Herb Trimpa. So that was a really nice touch. And I really appreciate that. And again, I, I really need to say the art is so beautiful. The pacing on it is a really great bit of pacing. Perhaps this just wasn't the collection for it. But I did dig this story. It was a strong couple of pages that kept me going. Now, I had a weird reaction to Lo, There Shall Come a Hero, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I love that when Fabian Nicieza picks up his pencil to write the characters he loves, you are always sure it is Fabian Nicieza writing his interpretation of his characters. And that is... 100% accomplished. It, it is not meant any kind of like, <clears throat> kind of way, like strong writers know their voice. Chris Claremont knows Chris Claremont's voice. You never mistake a Chris Claremont comic for someone else. Fabian Nicieza is in that category of a Marv Wolfman where the voice is just so clear. Brian Michael Bendis, where the voice is just so fucking clear. You know an Alan Davis book. And for the most part, people think that, that that's an artist only thing, but Fabian Nicieza has such a, a way about him it's his charm that you know this is not just his perspective but it's a perspective that he mapped into a genre you know what I mean like Fabian Nicieza was the bar that X-Men was held to throughout a lot of the 90s so a lot of stories play into his motifs and his interpretation of these characters and my weird reaction to this story was perhaps that I feel like it how do I say this I needed this or a couple of the other stories like it, this covered so much of his history this probably should have opened the book for me and i maybe didn't need some of the other contemporary pieces because of this and that's the danger when you have the creator come back well because the other side of it is later in the book but that's one of the dangers when the creator the person who understands the character the most intimately who's written the most issues of the character i guess that's one of the dangers it's like when claremont comes back and writes storm for four pages and you're like well now i don't need to read more storm today yeah this had a i guess it, the positioning was weird with this too because we had just so much lighthearted storytelling and this gets dark this is dark it's it, you know he's in a dark and lonely place uh, i mean it starts with body horror yeah i mean the vi visually is is striking um you know we're used to uh you know we're used to you know deadpool looking you know just you know when he takes the mask off it's a traumatizing experience for everybody you know that's that's like normative uh but it's it's usually like kind of scabby and and this is like i mean he, it, it's drawn like he's covered it's like he's covered in worms i don't, 
don't know if you guys have read uh i breathed a body from uh aftershock but it's it's very full of body horror and it's really intense and that's what this is and they're, they're totally two wildly different books uh and, and but the 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 body horror mechanic is um quite similar and i just i don't know i wasn't ready for it i was just like i was like whoa like what happened to baby deadpool and and 16 year old you know laughing at life deadpool and like then holy shit we're here now like it just it, it took it took me out of it like it was it was very jarring i very much agree i you know i i thought he looked kind of like swamp thing from dc like tree limmy like rootsy and i he was truly grotesque and it made me really want deadpool and dr doom to get into a staring contest but you know that's neither here nor there jonah how did you feel about the ugliest you've ever seen ryan reynolds be i am really surprised they didn't make a ryan reynolds reference considering that he got the part in part because he was mentioned in a comic i'm surprised there wasn't like a one little liner to it but so i'm not the biggest fan of body horror it's a little too grotesque for me in certain instances um i think what i maybe would have preferred and this is gonna sound so shady is if majority of this these pages were wade imagining himself into more costumes into more uh positions that's just what i would prefer um this was just too like too jarringly grotesque for you yeah uh it did i agree he looked a little bit like a bunch of worms moving around i i don't know if this was the right tone for uh deadpool's nerdy third 30 instead of his dirty 30 yeah, you know, we're going to be getting that Deadpool red, black, and blood, and blue, and purple, and bruised in the face, or whatever it's called, that we just covered Wolverine of. They're about to do a Carnage series. This might have fit a little better in something like that. It's just, it's such a heavy story conceptually in terms of it explains so much of the character. To have it be so jarringly grotesque, good story, maybe could have used a better vehicle. Yeah, uh, I, I totally agree with that. Also, I didn't know that they were going to do a compilation Deadpool deal. But man, everybody's doing these now it's, it's like the new form of storytelling i feel like dc marvel it's just like compilation city and you know what i'm glad i've been pushing for that since the first episode of this if you guys go back and listen to x's for podcast number one it's me saying i miss things like marvel team up and things like marvel comics presents like i love backup stories so this idea of putting together multiple stories to give an opportunity to things that don't normally get a chance to shine to give them that chance to shine means everything to me and there's probably no better example of that in this whole book than short story tall tale now we kept accidentally saying daredevil earlier it is of note that there is a daredevil deadpool annual out there right so they have met it's not like the weirdest thing and here is daredevil villain Stiltman facing off against deadpool and one of my all-time favorite lesser known characters from this corner of the mu agent x agent x came out at a really interesting transformative time at marvel you saw the birth and growth of things like new x-men and ecstatics and cable was in the midst of his redesign as soldier x which was under the pen of howard tishman and darko mccann and this was a really bold time for deadpool as well everybody was like oh deadpool's agent x and it was a really bold time for the storytelling the art was very of its era and agent x is a character that i don't think we get to go back to enough now i love goggles and cool sunglasses maybe that's all it really takes 
but what makes this story even better is the Domino Diamondback team up. When Gail Simone comes on your book, Gail Simone, just like Fabian Nicieza says, I'm going to set up shop in your head. You're not going to charge me rent and these stories are going to live there forever and you'll never get Gail's version of a character out of your head. The lightness Gail Simone can put into a character really does help me remember when they're supposed to be funny. She just understands how to make me laugh with paneling and this story is only enhanced by the art by Michael Shelfer and Jim Charlampetis. The two of them really create a 2002 experience that I won't soon forget. This is going to go in that if I ever do a reread of Agent X, I'm going to put this story in that read because it really captured what I wanted from that time. Yeah, I'd, uh, I just love that it was Gail Simone who was like, I'm going to do a Deadpool short dick joke. And I was like, that's that's on brand. <laughs> and it, it was so funny. Um, and it's just, it was cool to include Stiltman because uh, like, uh, of the Marvel Legends action figures. Like everybody's chasing like all those, uh, the Stiltman uh, Build-A-Figure and they're buying so many extra figures to, like make, make him real tall. yeah and it's just like man i wish i had like i blow a lot of money on nerd shit but like i don't have that kind of money i can't buy like eight twenty dollar figures just for extra leg pieces if uh, i could do anything i wanted i would buy enough pieces of that that i would be able to reassemble him into turk from daredevil the time turk <laughs> or daredevil uh, were stilt man stilts in the in the frank miller era I would have a custom Turk stilt man. That's what I would do. <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah, I love I love Gail and I love her writing. And unfortunately, I, I haven't got to read uh, her Daredevil yet. I just got the omnibus uh, with all her Daredevil stuff in it. it it's not her omnibus. But you it's keep like saying the... Daredevil, but you keep oh, meaning dead. Man, I, I do. I'm leaving I... all of them in. I'm leaving all of them uh. in. The only person who's pure still is Jonah. Jonah is pure. What is wrong with me? And I love Daredevil too. Like it's, you would think I could tell these guys well, apart. I was just talking. <laughs> about him so it's not your fault and we're talking about stilt man uh but i just got the the deadpool omnibus uh, that's like the deadpool classic volume one and but it's got all of gail's stuff in it and i'm really excited to to peep that but her her domino was excellent and it was really cool that that you know they brought all this back in uh this this may have been my favorite piece of this uh i really i just love gail she's just so awesome she's such a great champion for comics are for everyone comic books are great she's just so awesome i, I really hope i get to meet her one day when things change maybe we can do conventions and stuff again but yeah she's amazing and she's really cool and this story was amazing and really cool and funny and <laughs> this stilt man's dick man like who would have thought who would have thought we'd have a comic book about that uh me stilt man got a stilt me i definitely i just i want to make stilt man dick jokes all day all day stilt man dick jokes that's really Wait, hard to say let me take that back stilt man stilt dick jokes uh he's got a third stilt there we go ah, there's that third stilt Good. Can I ask why was that the plan? He didn't, he didn't just take he didn't take off the belt. He took off the lower piece of his. <laughs> why? why where was? What was the objective after that? <laughs> well, that's the thing. Deadpool isn't necessarily about the best way to save the day. He's about getting the day done. He just wants the day done. Did that's all he's trying to do. He's Deadpool, and if the day's done, did then he did his thing, and he gets to talk about Stiltman's third stilt with Cable, who doesn't want to hear a goddamn thing about Stiltman's third stilt 
Why was it shiny? That's what I want to know. He specifically says when he's laying there, when the girls are walking away, and then he's like, no, I'm fine. I'll be cool. And they, they like go, you know, they're like, all right, well, bye. And he, he's like giggling to himself. And he was like, it was so shiny. Like, why was it shiny? What is going on underneath that, that, that little cod piece thing? Like, I, like, I know so you we see, can't see it, but I want to see it. I have two answers to that. Hydraulic piece. Cock, I was going to say cock ring. Or he, um, the metal, because he goes, well, first off, why are you going commando in metal? That just seems like a really bad idea. I don't wear but denim anymore, but I wouldn't even do it in denim. I I can't imagine that a bunch of the the metal didn't rub off on his shwing schwam. Okay, so Daniel Way. Well, no, actually, <laughs> step back for a second. Jonah, this was your first Gail Simone. How did you feel about getting to write uh, getting to write Gail Simone? You wrote Gail Simone. How did you feel about getting to read Gail Simone for the first time? We talk a lot about her on this show, not just as a pioneer of women taking agency in comics but we also talk about how fucking talented she is did the story live up to the hype absolutely 120,000 percent i think this was probably story-wise my favorite because it was just it was just what i expect of deadpool which is dick jokes being cheesy explosions and wade not getting his way so i think she did a really fantastic job of capturing the voice and aesthetics and humor of what everybody should be expecting from Deadpool. Now, something I was not expecting was to see Daniel Way to show up in the pages of X-Men. Daniel Way left Marvel very suddenly all at once a long time ago. Like, he had been on a bunch of books and then suddenly wasn't. So it was interesting to see Daniel Way's name reappear. Now, Paco Medina is an artist very much tied to that era of X-Men and Deadpool. And so it was really nice to see a familiar face I hadn't expected. How did you guys feel about this story? Because I would say my one really negative on it is nothing happened. I agree, Nico. Not a lot happened. This one was kind of odd. I don't see Wade as like the the drug dealer killing type. You know, like I just I feel like I feel like he respects the hustle. You know? <laughs> <laughs> So I don't know. I this kind of it, <laughs> it just it felt a little out of character. Well, the the part about leaving him in the freezer felt a little out of character. The part about you know storing all his weapons in these vacant ice cream parlors is totally on brand. That I liked. That was fun. But yeah, other than that, it was just this was this was kind of an odd entry. The stylization of the art though goes a really long way to carry my attention. I love the way Paco Medina loves to, for lack of a better term, kind of cutie deform things, but try to keep it all very on brand and all very in line with the sort of Marvel style. You know that this is still a Marvel book. You know that it's even still like an X-Men book, but there's something so unique about the exaggerative deformation of the head. I hate comparing artists to one another because they all have unique styles, but just to put a name out there that also does some severe exaggeration, you've got Humberto Ramos, you've got Scotty Young, you have Joe Majura, you've got all of these guys who really know how to like deform a head and I really feel like this art by Paco Medina is some of the top of his game for that sort of in-depth stylization. Jonah, how did you feel about the art, both the sort of stylization and the writing? Because, you know, writing is artistry. I think both independently and together worked well. I think the story is well written and I do really like the art. I just don't know how this fits into their narrative of 
of Deadpool. What I think this is, you know, Deadpool's Nerdy 30 was supposed to be was this exciting look into Wade's life comically through different times of his birthdays. Because every day is his birthday and this every story is, is a day of his birthday. I don't know exactly where this story fits in to tell us about Deadpool. This story felt a little too serious for what was meant to be a fun birthday celebration for Wade. It's not bad, and I would, I think it fits into something. Like, it could fit into a Deadpool solo issue. It could be its own standing medium. But I don't know if this was the proper place for it. I also don't know why Wade would capture someone to then bring them to the CIA. It just feels like a weird setup. I, I'm not sure why the, the like the, the context of this story to me doesn't make sense. And I didn't feel much more fulfilled in the next story either. Now, I'm a big Dugan fan, and I enjoyed Dugan and Posehn's run on Deadpool. And Scott Koblish does some beautiful pencils. But I also didn't have any great attachment to the next story. I don't know, maybe the two of them both felt like setups for something where if there was a payoff, it would have been rewarding. But because they were both meant to be short stories with no payoff other than the story themselves, I don't really feel like I got anything from it if i'm not going to see deadpool now live then i don't care about the next story as much and if the previous story doesn't take wade on some journey through where he's been you know what i mean like these would have been great entries in bigger runs which is why it's cool that everybody that's worked on this is someone who's worked on deadpool but how did you guys feel about the dugan posein story was i the only one who felt like if it could go somewhere you'd enjoy it more yeah i feel that big time i, w- I was excited for this because like I mentioned earlier, I really, really love the, the Pusain and Dugan run. Like, it, it, Other than the, the Dead Presidents arc went on just a little bit too long, but everything after that was wonderful. Um, and, and the Dead Presidents arc, like looking back on it now, was cool. Just as reading it as singles as it released, just, I was like, okay, like wrap it up. But anyway, <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, like cool, they got these guys back together. Like, It's easy to talk about this, but it's it's hard to, you know, writing like a normal short story as prose is difficult. You know, you don't get the time as a novel. Um, writing a, a graphic short short story is also tricky you just don't you only get a few pages you have to you know kind of you know elicit some kind of arc but i mean this just didn't really i don't know you know it had like a kind of heartwarming moment to it like the father-daughter deal but even then it just it just felt like kind of glossed over like i don't know yeah it just it was missing a little something maybe Jonah, without any of the context that goes with this run, did this story, like, make any sense? No, this story, to me, made the least amount of sense. I didn't know who Ellie was before this. I, when I first saw that and didn't see the name, I was like, is this somebody who's a mix of America Chavez and Monet? That's what the character looks like. Yeah, but wearing Billy's Demiurge suit, yeah. So I was just a little too confused. Again, uh really well written but the place of this in the nerdy 30 i'm not too sure of i also think that this doesn't make the most sense i don't really think we need to see a story that's decades in the future it, that doesn't ring a bell with me if anything i would have preferred a shorter narrative if you are going to do something in the future have wade be old and have ellie be picking up a superhero mantle of some kind and having them talk about it having wade be retired and have her pick up the mantle at deadpool or be doing something else looking 
something like Monet America Wiccan. Uh, there's a name combination in there. You think of it. I'm just not sure if Wade giving a sailor send off was like needed. Now I know Marvel has its Wicked Mad on for everything old man. That's like their thing. Once Cable stopped being an old man, everybody else got to be an old man, and I get that. But I don't care for I don't care for jumping to the future if it doesn't directly impact the present so much. That's not really my jam. And that's why I'm not a big fan of shows that do leap forward series finales. I feel real bad about it, but that's not my jam either. So this story didn't resonate with me very much at all. So the last story sees one of the creators of Deadpool draw themselves into Deadpool's antics, which is so... So you guys came into Deadpool Nerdy 30. Did you guys expect the Deadpool writer and artist love fest that you got within? Or were you expecting something a little bit closer to Wolverine, Black, White, and Blood? That's a good question. I didn't really know what to expect. I definitely took it as like, you know, because of the title, it was a celebration, obviously, which I wouldn't call Black, White, and Blood, you know, a celebration of Wolverine. I did feel like a different vibe, but I honestly, like, it was cool. I dug it. I don't know that I would have... read this nico if, if i wouldn't have been on this panel like i really I, I probably wouldn't have it probably would have slipped by me interesting now jonah i asked you to read this with me because i know that you've recently read the kelly thompson run and i wanted you to have a little bit more of the background that would be associated with the character kind of like a shorthand to catch up on a number of the creators that had come before how did you feel about your experience running through 40 pages of deadpool's history all at once it was fun and it was nice and you know what i wish that marvel would do this for a lot more characters there have been characters that have been pushing like 70 years or just you know a lot uh we're coming up on like a lot of characters you know big number of anniversaries they don't even have to be like this long or this expansive but like even if it's just a collection of like the pivotal vital key moments that marvel thinks that everybody should at least have a basis knowledge of say uh, should have the knowledge and say this is the base that everybody should be at i would love that because i think it'll help you know bridge the gap and allow people who are coming into comics now to be able to enjoy them and to have a better a little bit of a better understanding of what's going on i love and appreciate when our and the art team that's you know the the royal art team <laughs> the royal them <laughs> the royal them uh make callbacks and make references to things of yesteryear but not everybody is going to understand where those references come from and it would be nice to have just a little bit of a better basis without av- having to read 5,000 issues back from the 60s. Yeah, that that would be super helpful. Also, I think it would be really cool in comics in general if for compilations like these. Uh, I will I will commend Marvel all day for getting the mostly rock star talent on this and the structure was really cool, like how it aged him. You know, pre-baby, baby, teenager, adult, older, future, kind of riding the time stream in a linear fashion through the various narratives. That was really cool. Uh, you know, most compilations just feel like Wolverine Black, White, and Blood, just for example, because we covered that on the show. It is, you know, it was, it was cool, but, you know, there was no cohesive vibe to any of it. It was just a bunch of crazy stories and a bunch of writers having fun. And this was some writers having fun, but there was structure to it. And I really appreciated that. And I, I really think that going forward, I hope, I hope the big two, I hope indie publishers that do, you know, compilation stuff like this, I, I think it should be a very good example going forward of, you know, how a successful compilation 
compilation and a comic book could be and you could charge a dollar or two extra for it and if you if this is the kind of stuff you get from it like i mean i'm happy to pay that dollar or two extra tip if it's if we, if we get the thought and care that put into this and you know my only thing is i probably would not have kept all of these stories in one book i'm not saying do two you know maybe i am maybe i'm saying that deadpool has become too varied a character and maybe it would behoove to have a deadpool dirty 30 and a deadpool nerdy 30 and they could have each been 24 pages and i would have maybe thought that would have suited the needs of the storytelling a little better some of these stories were a little too rough to be in the same book as some of the stories that were a little bit more soft you know what i mean Hey everybody and welcome back. Now in this next segment, Maddie, Kyle, and Nathan discuss the conclusion of Teeny Howard's incredible return of Betsy storyline spinning out of the pages of Ten of Swords. Now for the most part, Ten of Swords hasn't seen its impact in the pages of X-Men quite as much as we might have expected. We haven't seen too much of Arako in the pages of X-Men, but Excalibur has been dealing extensively with the fallout of that crossover, the loss of Betsy and the loss of Apocalypse, and and the new status quo for so many characters. And here, the team loves taking a look at the different ways that this conclusion can be interpreted and what it's come to mean to them. We hope you guys enjoy. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of X's for Podcasts, where we gather together to bring you all the best of all things X. My name is Maddie, and you can find me as always on Instagram at the Basely Covetous Man and over on Twitter at Basely Covetous. I'm Kyle, and you can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. That's D R A N T I S 82. Hey, and I'm Nathan. You can find me online on Twitter and Instagram at Dazzler AOA, where I will probably be standing the Violet Swan for the end of the days. And we we are together again to bring you issue number 19, Wild Violets of Excalibur, written by Teeny Howard with art by Marcus Tu, color art by Eric Arseniega, letters by VCs Ariana Marr, and design by Tom Muller. Believing that they've successfully located their missing member, the Captain Britain Corps descend on the Starlight Citadel, seeking Saturnine's assistance in returning Betsy to them. Meanwhile, Richter leads Excalibur in a fruitless ritual to locate Betsy's missing spirit. Impatient as always, Quan and takes it upon herself to travel through the Avalon Gate, tuned to Betsy's psychic signature, and escort her home herself. In the process, Quanon saves the village of Jackdaw's Nest, earning herself the title of the Violet Stranger. And it is feeling a little bit like Excalibur is coming back together, for me at least. I mean, I can agree that it feels like they're finally bringing everything back together, but I found a lot about this book to be very uncomfortable. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> was, was, was it the body swap stuff again? <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> so, uh, boy. <laughs> we'll get there. One of the things that really stuck in my mind was also along with just the issue itself, there was a review that came out on AIPT by Alexandra Isiak that not only talks about, you know, just the, the issue itself, but the imperialism that kind of just like see throughout Galibur as a whole, especially with the Captain Britain Corps. So that's really been clouding my judgment 
judgment of it. So I'm kind of really eager to talk to the rest of you guys to see where you guys are too. It was a good book, and but uncomfortable. Uncomfortable for sure. And in in regard to that to that article, that's definitely something I'd like to read. Something that I uh, am a little bit glad that I didn't read going into this because you know I I myself am glad that I don't have like that external influence. I tend not to talk about these issues much before we cover them. I like to leave this experience to be something organic. I've never been one for for spoilers. You know, I I can surely appreciate somebody else's analytical take, and thankfully, so can all of you because otherwise we wouldn't be here. But you know, that said, just to look at Excalibur and the trajectory of Excalibur of late. In each issue lately, Excalibur seems to be moving further away from the ten poles of conflict that were synonymous with the first two volumes of its run, namely Mariana Stern and the Covenant Kaba, as well as the complexities of the British government and their perception of Betsy's Captain Britain. Now, of course, the latter is on pause due to the lack of a Betsy since the events of Ten of Swords, but in either case, how has, specifically, the pacing and decompression of the last few issues sat with you? Uh, for me, it's been something that I, I've actually, I've really enjoyed the change of pace. Looking back at it after the Ten of Swords event, I, I really think that, like, before we went into Ten of Swords, I was like, what is this? What's going on? After Ten of Swords, I really saw what Teeny was trying to accomplish with it. So, like, in hindsight, I, I'm really appreciated the first run versus where I was for. But I, this run right now, dealing with all the otherworldly and politics and, like, the whole Captain Britain core, like, it really feels, in, in just the pace, too, even, it really feels like classic old school Excalibur, whereas before I didn't necessarily have that feeling. So for me, um, yeah, I, I've i really enjoyed the last few issues of Excalibur. Uh, just the amount of time that was being spent focusing just on the characters themselves and how they are reacting to the loss of Best Betsy. And um, yeah, so this, this one, while it continued that a little bit, it's definitely bring in the the Captain Britain core part and like Nathan said it's it's feeling like classic Excalibur. I definitely have to agree with the two of you. I think that there definitely was a classic Excalibur feel to this. There was an otherworld romp, there was a theme to it which was sort of Diablo-esque village hunting. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? Like with with the location of Jackdaw's Nest and I I think the to see the entire team put back together with the exception of the the no longer was apocalypse I think that we are we are definitely moving in a direction that is conducive to to really strong storytelling going forward but I am curious to see as we bring those aforementioned moments from the first two volumes Mariana Stern and the Kakaba the intricacies with the international government agencies and their perception of Captain Brit I am going to be curious to see when we're going to get some resolution in those arenas. Not that I'm particularly rushing for it, not that I'm impatient for it, but, you know, we were just discussing in our coverage of X-Force last week that Ben Percy does such an excellent job, similar, not not unsimilar to Jonathan Hickman, of establishing and seeding future action and then walking away for a while. 
So there's a number of books right now in the Reign of X that have been carried over from the Dawn of X that seeded a lot of action up front, X-Force being an excellent example. With Excalibur, I didn't ever think that that is what we were getting. I, I never saw it explicitly as we are, we are planting these seeds and they are going to grow and bear fruit because so much of Excalibur, especially in its first 10 issues, was so bold. The introduction of new magic mysticism into the, the House and Powers era. But now that we're getting a chance to breathe with these characters, now that we've gotten a chance to see the variety of emotional responses of team to losing Apocalypse, to losing Betsy, now we have Betsy back, we'll be able to expand on the intricacies of their interpersonal relationships with her back in the fold. You know, I think that we are we are definitely going to see some big things coming out of Excalibur soon. You know, I want to go back to the opening really quickly because as Nathan said, you know, he stands the the uh, violet <laughs> swan, you know, and I feel like, well, first off, if if anybody has any questions about the alternate reality versions of Betsy's Captain Brit, you can ask our very own Josh Wheel. In our coverage of the reveal at the end of Ten of Swords, he actually went through and was was gracious enough to gift us with the, the origins of almost every Betsy Captain that we see established in the core. So everybody has a favorite for sure. We're not going to escape today before I ask you guys your favorites. But <laughs> what was surprising to me about the opening was not the, the reintroduction of the Captain Britain core. I'm glad that it's not a one-off instance. I'm glad that we are seeing in perpetuity the actualization of the Betsy Captain Britain core. But, you know, it's no secret that Saturnine harbors resentment for Betsy of 616. But to deny counsel to the entire Captain Britain core borders on obstance. For as long as she went without her captains, you would think that, resentments aside, Saturnine would concede to help them. So do we see a possibility of Saturnine coming around to the new core, or is she always going to view them as illegitimate? I don't see her willingly coming around to accepting the core. I could almost see an instance of something happening with the Citadel where she needs to rely on them. And that's the only chance that we could see them actually being accepted by her, I think. Uh, The way Saturnine is, is acting in this is probably one of my biggest complaints of the series just just her characterization overall i mean this is a woman who is she's like the universal omnimatrix right so like how is she going to have a baby pouty fit that captain britain core is all betsy i think at some point she would have moved on and i would have hoped it would have been shortly after ten of swords but that's just the one thing like her being her having risen to that position it doesn't she doesn't seem like she would be that type of person who would hold this kind of and it seems like a baby grudge, baby pouty grudge. You know, I, I totally get that. And there is a little part of me that particularly going back to the climax of, at conclusion of Ten of Swords, seeing Saturnine realize that she's the reason she didn't get her own way, that the spell backfired, that the ritual backfired, that Betsy was always meant to be the captain and she couldn't, you know, work her wiles to reinstate Brian in the role. I was a little bit hoping, not, not earnestly, you know, I didn't expect it to be, but I was a little bit hoping that that was going to be the end of the the Saturnine saga for a little while. And I'm not here to say that I'm disappointed that it's continuing, but if nothing else, I want to commend Teeny Howard on absolutely getting the cadence of Saturnine right. If 
only she leans into the pettiness and obstinance a little bit. And, you know, it's not for me to say that that's not within her character. You know, I absolutely could understand. I try my best every time I see Saturn Night on page to empathize where she's coming from. And like, shit, I might be in love with Brian too to that degree. You know what I mean? <laughs> Who <Like>, is <laughs> Fucking look, look at him. Um, but having said that, you know, at some point you would like to think that this is something that will be overcome. And if for no other reason than I think it's an excellent opportunity to showcase and hold space for women empowering women. I am not, as, as a man particularly, I am not here to tell a woman how to write a woman, nor am I here to tell a woman how to write an interaction between multiple women. But that said, I think that the contrarian aspect of their relationship, the amount of combative energy between the two of them, it's, it's rich to be mined for something positive. And I think that they're like, I think, okay, so if anybody hasn't seen Crazy Rich Asians, there is an excellent scene towards the end of the film where Constance Wu has a conversation with her disapproving mother-in-law while playing Mahjong. And it basically is just like a fluid trading of power dynamic where she's basically saying like, I understand that you don't respect me and that you resent me for these reasons, but here are all the ways that I supersede that. And I can't expect you to change your opinion, but if I can only change the way that you perceive it. And I think that there's something so powerful about that. And every time I see Betsy and Saturnine in the same issue on the same page, that's a little bit what I'm hoping for. Not immediately, but organic. To move away from mansplaining to the wonderful Teeny Howard how to write <laughs> excellent women, which I certainly did not mean to do. And I will jump over to my favorite man in all the Excalibur. It's been months of publication since Apocalypse took his leave of absence, and we're beginning to see Richter come into his own as Excalibur's resident mystic. How do we all feel about everybody's favorite druid taking up the mantle of Coven Leader? I really enjoyed seeing his actions in this particular issue because it shows that he's not just good at magic immediately. I like that he's struggling to figure out how to make things work. I like that he's frustrated. It creates a more natural feel to the progression of his character. I absolutely yeah. agree. I love even when you look at the data page where he's trying to figure out like just the spell itself where he's like got everything scribbled over I and mean, he's like, wait, no, Megan here. No, uh, no, move Rogue over here. Move Gambit over here. And just like the self-doubt because it's so new to him. You know, Richter's always been a pretty assured character. He's never always been like the most overly confident, but just to see him at a, at a point where he's not getting it, he's not really understanding and he's almost about to give up was kind of heartbreaking a little but i did love the pep talk they were all giving him and they were like hang in there buddy well that kind of brings us all the way back to excalibur one where we uh saw that he was very uncomfortable with his powers he was losing control of them he wasn't sure how to use them anymore and apocalypse was the one who gave him the confidence in order to grow back into his powers. So having Apocalypse gone again and him struggling to learn this new skill, it makes a lot of sense. 
I could not agree more, and I definitely agree with both of you in saying that this is the next logical progression for Richter as a character, but considering, you know, and and Kyle, you brought it up and, and put it so beautifully, considering that Apocalypse is gone now, that he was the one who not only mentored Richter in, in the ways of mutant magic, but rehabilitated him at his absolute lowest in a time that he was a man without a home and a country and, and control of his powers. To know that that influence from Richter's life has been removed. Clearly, there was going to be a hiccup or a misstep, you know, and we saw that in Richter's emotional handling of processing his own feelings about Apocalypse's leave of absence, but also in realizing that he did not share the same view of Apocalypse as the rest of his team. For me, for my money, I was really hoping to see, I almost called him Druid, I was really <laughs> hoping to see Richter's ritual succeed for his sake because sweet baby boy needs a win you know what i mean he oh. he just he just could use a little bit of a win you know magic daddy's gone and betsy's missing <laughs> and everything's on its head like he just but in my heart i understand why this issue had to be a quantity because i think and and something that i'd love to to dive into a little bit further i think that this is was an excellent opportunity and executed exceptionally well to really put the Quanin and Betsy relationship in the past and help to recontextualize them going forward. You know, after the tease that was issue number 17, Quanin and Betsy seem to have finally reconciled in a sense with the events of this issue. And this, of course, was long overdue and something that I can safely say that the three of us have been waiting on since the start of this run. But how did it feel to have so much emphasis put on Quanin and specifically Quanin's forgiveness of Betsy? Uh, so I I would say one, like this issue, I, I feel that we probably got one of the best in of Quanin where she is as a character now. In Hellion, she really hasn't had as much to do time to do the soul searching that she was able to do in this issue. Like conversely, though, I think the forgiveness that she gave was a little too like neat, happy comic book ending for me. It really seemed like those stories when uh, Carol Danvers and Rogue would meet up and like they always have Carol Danvers somehow have to get absorbed by rogue again so like that willingness to do it in that moment always seems to make it okay in the past yes the whole body swap thing was not betsy's fault but on some level you'd think Quanin would have some resentment that is irrational and that she can't really control this is probably my biggest criticism of this issue so there is a trope that is kind of racist and it's kind of gross it focuses around a person of color who has been hurt by a white person and then they turn around and have to become the savior of that white person while showing grace and i don't think that this was the best way to fix the strain between Betsy and Quanin's relationship or lack thereof at this point I should say just because it does evoke that trope and it feels it feels very uncomfortable to me I absolutely understand where the two of you are coming from and specifically Kyle I understand where you can see the residue of that sort of trope in this story I as of course I would never 
speak to the experience of a person of color as I myself not. I think, yes, you are absolutely right. There definitely is that pervasive quality of a person of color having to redeem or save or salvage something about a Caucasian individual while retaining grace, like you'd said it. I would love to jump to Nathan's thoughts and sort of tie it together. The way that I read this interaction for what you had said, Nathan, about potentially Quan and still having those deep-seated resentments and not being able to get over it and having to, you know, herself be the bigger person to get out of this. I myself grew up with a number of, you know, emotional issues, anger issues. And one of the things that you begin to learn on your path to, you know, self-discovery and self-healing is that a lot of those reactions are the result of trauma. And for a while, particularly when you're young, you'll then justify that. You'll justify, okay, so I, I feel the way that I do and I have the resentment that I do and I have the anger that I do because it was right for me to, because there was something unjust done towards me that was out of my control. But at a certain point, you have to realize that you're the only person who can let that go. I think in this issue, Quanin chose to be the bigger person and to let that go in the interest of furthering her own path towards self-healing and not in the interest of saving or salvaging Betsy's well-being over her own. I think if nothing else, most people reading this interaction are going to see it as a redemption for Betsy at the expense of Wanted. What I think is being overlooked or understated is how much restraint and how much humility it takes in this moment for Quanin to say, and I quote, this was never neat between us. Right, it's all about perspective. It feels like it's a, a sort of a personal story for Teeny, and she's telling it obviously from her perspective. Whatever in her life is the analog of this that she's drawing her well of emotion from. For all of its quirks, this way of putting a pin in the Quanin and Betsy relationship after so many years could never have lived up to the hype regardless of how it happened. There was something walking away from that experience that it took a second or a third read to really find the emotional through line for Quanin in that moment to give me something to sink my teeth in. But for all of its flaws and for all of its quirks and for how quickly we got the resolution in a single issue, I will just say that above anything else, I am glad that for so many years of them being bonded together, the person to bring them together to a point of resolution and reconciliation was a female author. I, I can agree with that. And I think a large part of why this stood out for me so much was actually because there was another controversy in media surrounding something similar within the last week of this issue being released. So my view on it may have been clouded by that as well. Clap, clap, clap. Betsy's back. I'm so happy for her. Let's talk about Quan a little bit more. To escort Betsy home, Quan allowed her spirit to possess her body. Given how many years they were bonded, I'm sure that decision was difficult for both parties, but particularly for Quanin. And sure, they have a conversation about it. And Betsy's like, are you sure? But like, there's really no other option. You know what I mean? Like, she's not going to carry an intangible spirit out of other world. Like, it's, it's simply not going to happen. In her position, Quanin's position, would you or could you have allowed yourself to be a host for somebody in that capacity? Oh. Yeah, we're hitting you with the real questions. <laughs> Personally, if I were in the situation, I am a... 
I I self-sacrifice a lot, so I probably would allow myself to act as a vessel to carry the spirit back. Yeah, I probably would do it. I totally get that. I I think that I would too because I am I am also self-sacrificing in that way and I feel like I feel like the only thing that, you know, and this is why it was a hard question to write and a harder question to ask, which is, you know, you're assuming that like Kyle, if for some reason I needed to psychically carry you to safety, I would do it. Nathan, not so much. No, I would absolutely. Oh. <laughs> I no no no, I just I just realized I realized that I pointed one of you out and not the other and I tried to take a quick pot shot. I would I would happily let either one of you into my body, but I'm um, having said that, I can't possibly know what it is like to have somebody else inhabit your mind and body for decades of publication. So I want to say that I would, like on paper, no questions asked, you know, with no history. With that history, I'm really not sure. So Nathan, how do you feel? Could you allow yourself to let Betsy inhabit your mind and body? I want to say I would. I really want to say that I would be that selfless. I would be really afraid of the idea of, of solely losing myself and being submerged with uh, Betsy again if, if I was in Cannon's position because I, that is like the most terrifying thing like I think I could live with like I will I couldn't live by sacrifice myself I, I know I could sacrifice myself save others but I don't know that I could sacrifice my mind and have it assumed like that yeah that's like the ultimate vulnerability and and again you know like I said before with with no history or context it's it's particularly difficult enough to imagine yourself doing in terms of the the just emotional realness that that is required you're letting a person into your body and into your mind but i I just had a an owen wilson wow moment of just realizing like wow the entire relationship between quan and betsy is a thinly veiled metaphor for consent i'm 15 years late to that party (laughs) (laughs) but ultimately it's fine and well if i can think of something that's not fine i would say the fact that we haven't discussed the reveal at the end of the issue so to leave you all with today i wanted to bring up malice of course as we see when betsy returns to her body she coughs up the choker the choker of course being synonymous with malice not to be fused with the five other malices of marvel (laughs) um, but specifically (laughs) malice of sinister's marauders of the past so knowing that sinister supplied jamie jamie braddock with the clone body of our now returned betsy do we think that either of the two of them had anything to do with malice's possession of betsy or do we think that malice has just been hiding out on the island and capitalized on the opportunity to host inside of a blank pot you'd think that somebody would have picked up on her psychic signature if she was hiding on the island i think that it probably must have happened shortly after or right around the time that betsy's body just kind of appeared in the ocean outside of the lighthouse because that was really weird how that happened i'm not really sure how that clone body got there i would say that it's a little bit too coincidental malice and sinister already have a connection jamie went to sinister for the body of betsy and the body of betsy received from sinister was possessed by malice like that's a little too coincidental mm-hmm. for me i i live my life by the by the merit of if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck it's probably a duck you know what i mean but it, it is also not like kyle you brought up a great point the the one thought that stands out to me is you know we should be keeping tabs on our more dangerous mutants and our more intangible mutants 
Do you know what I mean? Right. And I feel like in that capacity, there must be someone on the eye who is doing just that. And I'm sure they would have picked up on Malice's signature, you know? So I'm really split 50-50. Nathan, I always do this to you. I make you break ties all the time can't be a coincidence i mean it, it really can't there, there's no way it can't what i do love about this though is is how it really shows how teeny howard's been really doing her homework with the canon like like of course sinister and malice that like that's so that's like such a good combination so then you've got like little hints throughout the whole story of just like these deeper connections like jackdaw's nest like just like having that village named after brian braddock old i guess you would say companion <laughs> like it's doctor who and the earth that Violet Strange, I don't know what you want to call her, but like Dr. Betsy is from, that showed up before in Extreme X-Men. So like, there's just all of these little like connections throughout. So the way Teeny's been writing, it, it cannot be a coincidence. It has to be Sinister doing something dastardly. You know, I love that take. And I specifically love your, your pointing out of all the ways that Teeny Howard is brilliant because we could all afford to do that about 200% more often. <laughs> but specifically the Jackdaw's Nets reference, that's not one that I had, I picked up on, so phew, mind blown. <laughs> but, <you laughs> I know, thought that I thought that sounded familiar, but I couldn't remember where it was from. I looked up like the significance or the symbolism of a, of a jackdaw. Jackdaw is a a like gray crow, um, not gray crow, but a gray variety of crow for the most part that's noted for its inquisitiveness. And as far as its symbolism, there's a contrasting ideologies. It would seem on one hand a having a jackdaw in your home or fly down your chimney is a sign of death and is typically a bad omen but a jackdaw itself is typically a sign of a new arrival or a new in and so in that way I wonder how much of that symbolism is you know for my hope is synonymous with Excalibur starting over now with Betsy again without a pops ah I love it when they can draw meaning from other stuff and, and just even like you said it's a gray crow like hello who is uh, Conan like almost maybe getting along really well with in Hellion. Oh, holy shit. I didn't even put that together. <laughs> I literally... And, and you know what? It is, it's it's such a testament to Teeny's ability to borrow these characters. Two issues ago, we took a couple of characters from Leah Williams' X Factor. Now we have two repeated instances of Quanon joining us from Zebwell's Hellions. We have Sinister on loan from Hellions repeatedly. So she does such a great organic job of working them into her her work into her property that i just i completely like this quanon was in in voice in cadence the same quanon that zeb wells is writing in hellions but i just wow holy shit i just put that together for myself um i'm gonna collect myself while you guys uh posit <laughs> your final thoughts I'm excited that we have Betsy back. I, I'm i wondering what kind of turn Malice's reappearance is going to have on, on Krakoa. And I hope we get to see more Violet Swan. Yay, the Violet Swan, please. <laughs> this was a well-crafted issue. There are some perspective issues that I, I think it really just depends on what perspective you are reading the story from is going to be how you're going to take it and some of the more maybe problematic elements of it. Um, I, I still think it is beautifully crafted. I was surprised 
surprised that it was Malice in the end and being such a huge lover of like the Marauders just in like the whole era I was really shocked that it didn't go through my mind although now with Maddie's mention of the other Malices I kind of want like Bessie to have like that 90s uniform they gave Sue Richards when she like had the Malice persona in with like the big four cut out for the movie. Oh the Anthropomorpho Malice? (laughs) Yes. Yes. Just give me every Malice. This is going to (laughs) be it is an amalgam of malices that would be amazing but um it's just there's so much love and care and craft put into the story i i can overlook a lot of the issues that i've seen raised about it just because it there's it's done with love it really is and the violet swan better get their own miniseries i would i would absolutely read a four-part violet swan miniseries i would read a violet swan ongoing but that's neither here nor there (laughs) i you know my final thoughts are unsurprisingly something that we didn't talk about because I didn't have the foresight or forethought to mention it. So I'll say it here. I think that going forward, we are going to see, well, hopefully we're going to see an excellent team outing in the next issue or two, because this volume wraps up in the next two issues, 16 to 21 prizes, volume three. And so hopefully that will be an action packed two issues. Maybe it'll leave us uh, wanting a little more. Of course, it will leave us wanting a little bit more. And in the vein of wanting more, I would call back to the appearance of Elsa. Beth Braddock, the the Captain Britain who actually found Betsy this time. And there was there was point made to mention that dedicated to the study of psionic sorcery rather than the blade, her fo- her focused totality turned inwards. Elspeth's psychic powers are extremely home. Just looking forward, I wonder if now that Betsy has the Starlight Sword, if not needing to put forward the mental and telepathic energy to produce her blade will allow her to turn that attention inward and focus on expanding the parameters of her TK. What if a Allowing herself to save that energy brings back her foresight abilities. And that's your thinker for the week, audience. So (laughs) goodbye. (laughs) Bye-bye. Hey everybody, Nico here again. And this is Kevo. And in this next segment, we're going to cover the balance of the first issue of Black Knight Curse of the Ebony Blade by Cy Spurrier featuring myself, Blake, Nathan, and Jonah. But before we could get to that, I wanted to touch on something really interesting. Now, I had kind of missed the Black Knight King and Black tie-in when it first came out, and when Blake mentioned it in our coverage, I decided to go out and read it. And I asked Kevo, who keen-eared listeners would remember from covering Black Knight in the Otherworld saga here on X for podcast many moons ago, as well as from our constant coverage over on HTML, to join me to read King in Black, as well as the first issue of this series. Now, the King in Black issue was a lot more tongue-in-cheek than I'd expected, while I know that Cy Spurrier, the writer, as well as Jesus Seis, the artist, are capable of a lot of humor, I was perhaps taken aback by how silly it was. Okay, I'm really glad that that wasn't just me. I was immediately immediately taken aback and in fact most of my notes for this issue king in black black knight are okay is this just dane now it just feels like it's trying very hard like right down to the spirit saying if it bit thee upon thy fundament meaning if it bit you on the ass like that's not that it's it, it, it's it's like i said it's trying way too hard 
and just calm down a little bit. I really thought that Black Knight, in order to be portrayed as funny, perhaps didn't need the, oh, you got my butt plate armor and the fundament thing. Like, it did seem like there were times that in order to make Arrow and Swordmaster, who are so fucking incredible, shine brighter, they maybe kind of scoffed down the shine on Dane just a little. What, you mean with all the puking? Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about Arrow and Swordmaster. Did they exist before this? Absolutely. They are part of a bold new wave of Marvel characters. There's a strong initiative at Marvel to create more dynamic, interesting characters that represent the diversity and inclusiveness of the real world, as opposed to keeping it all the same few white people with the occasional sidekick who happens to be a person of color. So Arrow and Swordmaster are two incredible more recent characters who have had ongoings or minis in the last few years and I was personally really surprised to see them here I know there's going to be a number of one shots coming out at Marvel that are looking to have lesser known and lesser used more recent characters appear with mainstays like Iron Man and Captain America but Black Knight kind of feels like he's getting a boost from Arrow here and I I enjoyed the issue It was a nice bit of levity in a very dark event, but it definitely did paint Dane in an interesting light. But I think that was even meant to be part of it in conjunction with the first issue of Curse of the Ebony Blade. They're painting a picture of Black Knight where he is sort of universally pitied. So I think it was really clever to have him have this experience abroad, both away from where the Avengers generally dwell and away from England where he is from, to have this experience with with other heroes who are like, uh, yeah, this guy's kind of pathetic. I-, I did like them a lot. I didn't love that they kept calling him American because isn't he, you know, British? Yeah, and I think that's the danger of the Avengers being based in America. Everything that takes place in America is unfortunately, you know, ugly American. And yeah, at the same time, like, I'm hard-pressed to feel bad about a racism against a white person. I tend to agree. Now, I did think that Ebony Blade saw a significantly better interpretation of Dane, I really did enjoy the first issue a lot. I thought it was a lot of fun. Sometimes you're not the hero of the story that your name is on. And nobody knows that better than a character like Thor, who frequently is a dumbass and has to be saved by Sif. Or a character like Tony, who needs to rely on the help of his friends to keep him human. So I do understand sometimes needing the titular character to be less than titillating. But the second issue we're covering, The Curse of the Ebony Blade, was so much stronger for Dane as a character. It really made me dislike Thor. I don't have a lot of Thor comic experience, but the experience that I do have is mostly just Thor being an ass, and I don't I don't like that, especially because I know how much you love the character and you love the comics and the mythology. The only impressions that I've ever gotten is him behaving this way, where he's sort of a dick to people. And like, no, knock it off. That's the danger you run when it's a team book or appearing in someone else's title. Sometimes you sort of get that cultural interpretation treatment as opposed to an in-depth view into the character. Now, here's something I have to know if you caught. Did you catch the reference to Cersei? I did. Now, Black Knight and Cersei, as we discuss in our Black Knight coverage, did both leave the Marvel Universe together to join Malibu's Ultraverse in a unique experience where Marvel bought the Ultraverse and then were going to put their characters in it. And it was in a book called Exiles and they sent Juggernaut. And But then they all came right back because that was a bad 
that idea. And so Cersei and Black Knight, this makes a lot of sense. We're going to see them in the Eternals together. I'm really excited about it. I'm also really excited that they have since announced that Elsa Bloodstone is going to appear in the pages of Black Knight, which that kind of makes me happy because that's another mystical weapon playing against a person. And, you know, it's that whole lineage thing. Elsa got it from Ulysses. How did you feel about the sword itself? This idea that the phallic weapon make him do bad. How did you feel about white man can't stop doing bad because of long stick? I mean, when you put it that way, I actually hadn't considered that. My focus had been more on, you know, right before I turned the page with that picture of black suit Spider-Man, I was like, oh, this whole, the sword is a dark entity thing that's making him want to kill. It's very reminiscent of Venom. So the fact that it's diving into that concept, uh, I think is really cool because I love when a sprawling universe like this chooses to evolve its mythos using existing parts and reflect itself and evolve from within itself. I, I find stuff like that really cool. The angsty phallic man pain things, that's pretty much always there. And this is exactly why Kit Harrington was cast as Dane Whitman, I'm sure, for the Eternals film. And I'm sorry, for just Eternals. Eternals the movie. Eternals film. And it's one of the reasons that I wanted to get involved in reading Black Knight's current title to see the way that they are portraying him in the comics now to prepare audiences for his appearance in the films. Enjoy this next segment, which is the, con- the conclusion of our coverage of Black Knight, Curse of Niebony Blade number one. Verily forsooth. If you like what you hear, you'll probably like what you see. So don't forget to give us a subscribe over on YouTube, Patreon, and Twitter at X's for Podcast. As always, we love making this show for you guys. And until next time, keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open. Enjoy this next segment and we'll see ya. You know what we didn't talk about yet is the art, which is gorgeous, like in this book. It's just like colors, inks, pencils, like everything nails it. It's a very, very pretty book. And so, yeah, I was kind of, you know, distracted and swept away. It was. It kind of looks to me a little bit like that Runaways 25 to 30 by Michael Ryan sort of lovable, lush, animated character quality. I, I don't know. Like, I maybe thought the art was too pretty for some of the weird. I loved it. Like, I love his assistant. But for a minute, I was like, wait, did Quark come out of the Mojoverse? Not like Quark, you say nine, but like Quark, you know, like the, the Ram guy from the Mojoverse. That's what I thought it was. I was like, oh, who is this? But overall, like, art is so beautiful. It's probably a little, like you said, a little too shiny for Dark Story, but loved it. It was just the prettiest damn beheading I've ever seen. The, the beheading know, right? and when it when it comes back on, like, that whole scene was great. And the weird, the, the like, slurping sound effects like oh man i i don't know man i'm 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 weird and goofy and this just got me i didn't think i would like this as much like when you were handing out jobs in the in the chat room i was like oh yeah i was, I was like because i'm behind in the other x books because i've been doing other stupid podcast stuff and you know just busy and so like my x readings has has taken a back seat and so you know i can't if if i say like oh yeah i'll do an excalibur book or an x-force book like i'm gonna have to read like three or four issues to get caught up and so this one was like oh yeah it's spurrier i know that guy and it's a brand new issue okay I'll check that out and I just I wasn't expecting at all to connect with it like I did so it's very new reader friendly I guess uh, and it, I mean that's one thing that excels but I guess like like Nico's pointed out if you some of some of these guys that have like you know more more knowledge of, of you know his his backstory and, and what he's done over the years uh, it might be confusing with a, not like a weird vibe but I guess like tonally it sounds like like tonally it's kind of off like not what you're used to uh, no, I mean, like, I thought this was a really great Black Knight. I'm sorry if I haven't been clear and direct about it. I love Cy Spurrier. Uh, his Legion is 
his X-Men Legacy is one of my all-time favorite comics ever in the history of the world. His work here is terrific. I actually love all of the different work he's done on John Constantine over the years. I'm a really big Cy Spurrier fan, and I thought this issue was top to bottom amazing. I said to Jonah this morning that this is like the ultimate sword and sorcery comic I have gotten to read on the course of this show. I just thought the art was really pretty for the depths of darkness that the story was trying to tell I gotcha. And like, that's not a bad thing. The art is gorgeous. And I want this artist to have endless work. And I think he deserves it. And it's so great. But, you know, we're talking about the darkness in men's souls and shadow creatures whispering pain into your ears. And it was really bright and rosy. And it was maybe some of that also goes to the colorist wanting to put in really lush, vibrant colors, especially in an era of King and Black, which you're totally right. King and Black won't end, and I'm doing this Thor reread to get ready for Thor 4 more Thor, and I'm doing all of the Aaron Thor, and Null is implied in, like, the second issue of Aaron's run. He created All Black, and, like, it's there. So, like, Null actually even finds his way into the Jason Aaron Thor run and, you know, War of Realms and all of that. So, like, Null is everywhere. And that is really frustrating. I have enjoyed a lot of Kingdom Black, but I am at a point where I'm looking for something brighter. I am looking for a fun, high-energy era. I'm looking for something joyous to replace this. So maybe that's what this art team was thinking, too. Maybe this art team was saying, enough of the King in Black. Let us all be rainbows and shine. There is that moment. Well, no, this was in the <laughs> King in Black one-shot. but Because like from what I understand, the, the King in Black, like they enshroud the Earth in... in and symbiote goo and and everything is gooey and and black and drippy and sad and full of death and destruction uh and in the in the king and black one shot the the black knight where he teams up with like arrow and stuff there's a part where they like they're like don't you see the sky like it's like it looks fine i was like that isn't the image i've seen like posting around twitter or even in like what we've seen like in uh, from the tie-ins and sword like i was like i thought like it was like earth was this like black ball now and they like point to the sky and it's just like there's i was like there's a cloud like it looks looks pretty normal i don't know what you guys are trying to say but so yeah maybe maybe they are trying to brighten and liven it up a little bit i was promised a german death metal album cover filled with songs about hating your father (laughs) this this my friends is queen beryl on a bad day so Jonah, you came into this not knowing very much about the Black Knight, and I have to imagine you're walking out of this not knowing very much about the Black Knight, but perhaps your fancy has been tickled. How how tickled is your fancy right now? Well, I'm going to have to have a serious talk about my fancy and consent, because I don't remember asking for my fancy to be tickled. Has your fancy been tickled? Would you like your fancy tickled? Um, yeah, I do like when my fancy is tickled. Okay. Anyway... Uh, Good about- guys. Thank you for listening to XIP, XI4P After Dark, um, or as I'm calling it now, XI4PM. XI4PM, number one, absolutely amazing name. Number two, we have said way worse things before, not on the PM show, so I don't know what you're on about. I completely <laughs> forgot that we had that whole thing about Dazzler is fisting Siren. Wait, what? Yeah. There's an image where it, it's when, like, it's in the Hawk's pocket. 
Pox era. It's like number six. It's like Hawk six or Pox six. Dazzler yeah, is doing a concert and Siren's like behind her, but like the way she's running, it looks like she has her arm ready and it really looks like she's running up to fist her while they're singing. <laughs> it was a- really surprised. But happy. Uh, I, think she, I think she was just happy for the panel time. She was. Um, oh. <laughs> So anyway, enough about fisting to uh, another... I my personal thought uh when the professor Jax yeah, exactly. when she came and she was like, My working headcanon theory right now is that Camelot never existed and I was like, Go tell Jamie that <laughs> Go tell Jamie, go tell Brian, go tell uh go have a go have a nice talk with the Braddocks about how you think that they that 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 Camelot never existed. And I'm like, hmm. But outside of that I did appreciate this issue, and I did appreciate what it was trying to do for a character we haven't seen in a long time. I would be excited to continue reading, but I think from this issue, I need a better understanding of where the Black Knight came from to get us to this point. And I'm hoping that in the future issues, that they at least try to dip their toes into that a little more, so that people who I think be majority of the reader base would be able to understand everything i went to go make a joke because i'm like isn't black just like all of the colors all at once and so i went to be like okay so the way they get the black knight is they take the c knight and the y knight and the m knight and they wait no the k is black damn it so but not to be confused with a k hole a k black hole Okay, did anybody have final thoughts on this before we fall further down this cave? <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, I would like, I, I encourage people to read it, especially if you're fans of, of Spurrier. Uh, if, and, and if you're not reading King in Black, still buy it. You can buy it. The one shot works on its own. Uh, this new issue, is it works on its own. Uh, it's very, very, like I've said previously, new reader friendly. It's very funny. It's very weird. Uh, it's very pretty. So, you know, if you like all those things, you should buy this. And you should also hit me up on Twitter because I'm also like, like that and maybe we could like hang out sometime and be friends that was like supposed to be funny and then i was like shit this is sad i have friends i have I real like, friends dating. guys like oh, I, swear. I know that's why you like that's why this issue crapped you so much right yeah. <laughs> i was on another show last week and during sign off, they were like, "So tell us what you've got on your schedule. What you got coming up?" And I said, "What I got coming up?" They're like, "Wow, man, that sounds really cool." I was like, "I know. Pay me for being awesome already." And there was dead <laughs> silence for like twenty five seconds. I'm really excited to see where this is going. Um, I know his 2015 solo had uh, an appearance by Merlin, so I'm kind of hoping we get a little bit more of the other world, especially since they mentioned Camelot so much. I'm sure we'll get a little bit of other world in there, and kind of, kind of would love to see like Dane Whitman kind of like hang out with uh, Jamie uh, Braddock a little bit because they both seem a little twisted, but in different ways. And he's such a good friend with Brian. Why is Brian not here? Be friends with Brian. You both have problems. You both have swords. I know. I like how like now the Avengers are like, oh, we don't want join our team but like in new excalibur they were like please join our team and he's like what you guys are fighting way too much i don't even want to be on your team uh yeah i mean that that's the thing about like any team whether it's the x-men the avengers anybody's you kind of take a look at the roster and you go wait who's on the team right now oh and how often are you guys having events and crossover oh 
Oh, so you even have Hercules on regular duty. And you said it's an event every other week. I have to go off world. The Kree need me. Bye, guys. (laughs) And like, I have to imagine that is Carol's response half the time. Yeah, the the, the cosmic cast always has that. Like, oh, sorry, guys. Space. Like, (laughs) (laughs) I'd love to help you move, but uh, space. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I am. I have this mead thing. I Loki, Loki said something about a snake in a wedding. I don't know. I just got to go. I just, I just got to go. Right? And Jean's always like, oh, you, you said that the line is going to relaunch not around me. Oh, no. I've died. Help. <laughs> Help. I fell. Oh, He's no. Like, I'm pregnant. Scott you take Logan. my daughter. Take my daughter. Either one of you. Help. I'm pregnant. Really? And the, the baby's Emma's. Emma's <laughs> never been pregnant no. with Emma's baby. Not yet. We've, Not yet. We've never had an X Men gala before either, so <laughs> it could get intense. <laughs>